Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 2nd of December for the listening week that begins the 3rd. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Beginning with current events, here is an article from afro.com. Jeffries wins historic bid to lead House Dems after Pelosi. This comes originally from the Associated Press. It was posted November 30th, written by Lisa Mascaro, Dateline, Washington. Emboldened, House Democrats ushered in a new generation of leaders on Wednesday, with Representative Hakeem Jeffries elected to be the first black American to head a major political party in Congress as long-serving Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her team step aside next year. Showing rare party unity after their midterm election losses, the House Democrats moved seamlessly from one history-making leader to another, choosing the 52-year-old New Yorker, who has vowed to, quote, get things done even after Republicans won control of the chamber. The closed-door vote was unanimous by acclamation. It's a solemn responsibility that we are all inheriting, Jeffries told reporters on the eve of the party meeting. And the best thing that we can do as a result of the seriousness and solemnity of the moment is lean in hard and do the best damn job that we can for the people. It's rare that a party that lost the midterm elections would so easily regroup and stands in stark contrast with the upheaval among Republicans, who are struggling to unite around GOP leader Kevin McCarthy as the new House Speaker, as they prepare to take control when the new Congress convenes in January. Wednesday's internal Democratic caucus votes of Jeffries and the other top leaders came without challengers. Cheers broke out after the elections. The trio led by Jeffries who will become the Democratic minority leader in the new Congress, includes 59-year-old Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts as the Democratic whip, and 43-year-old Representative Pete Aguilar of California as caucus chairman. The new team of Democratic leaders is expected to slide into the slots held by Pelosi and her top lieutenants, majority leader, Steny Hoyer of Maryland and Democratic Whip James Clyburn of South Carolina as the 80-something leaders make way for the next generation. But in many ways, the trio has been transitioning in plain sight, as one aide put it, Jeffries, Clark, and Aguilar working with Pelosi's nod these past several years in lower-rung leadership roles as the first woman to have the Speaker's gavel prepared to step down. Pelosi of California has led the Dem pardon me, has led the House Democrats for the past twenty years, and colleagues late Tuesday granted her the honorific title of Speaker Emerita. 
It is an important moment for the caucus that there is a new generation of leadership, said Representative Chris Pappas, Democrat of New Hampshire, ahead of the voting. Democratic Rep. Cory Bush of Missouri called the leadership election historic and a time for change. While Democrats will be relegated to the House minority in the new year for the 118th Congress, they will have a certain amount of leverage because the Republican majority is expected to be so slim and McCarthy's hold on his party fragile. The House's two new potential leaders, Jeffries and McCarthy, are of the same generation but have almost no real relationship to speak of. In fact, the Democrat is known for leveling political barbs at the Republican from afar, particularly over the GOP's embrace of former President Donald Trump. Jeffries served as a House manager during Trump's first impeachment. We're still working through the implications of Trumpism, said Jeffries and what it has meant as a very destabilizing force for American democracy. Jeffries said he hopes to find common ground when possible with Republicans, but will oppose their extremism when we must. On the other side of the Capitol, Jeffries will have a partner in Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, as two New Yorkers are poised to helm the Democratic leadership in Congress. They live about a mile apart in Brooklyn. There are going to be a group, in my judgment, of mainstream Republicans who are not going to want to go in the MAGA direction. And Hakeem's the ideal type of guy to work with them, said Schumer in an interview referencing Trump's Make America Great Again slogan. Jeffries has sometimes been met with skepticism from party progressives viewed as a more centrist figure among House Democrats. But, res pardon me, but Representative Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat of Michigan, a progressive and part of the squad of liberal lawmakers, that's, quote, squad, of liberal lawmakers, said she has been heartened by the way Jeffries and his team are reaching out, even though they face no challengers. She said, there's a genuine interest that he wants to develop relationships. Oh, pardon me again. There's a genuine sense that he wants to develop relationships and working partnerships with many of us. Clark in the, Clark in the number two spot is seen as a coalition builder on the leadership team, while Aguilar as the third ranking leader is known as a behind-the-scenes conduit to centrists and even Republicans. Clyburn, now the highest-ranking black American in Congress, is seeking to become the assistant Democratic leader, keeping a seat at the leadership table and helping the new generation to transition. But Clyburn faces an unexpected challenge from De Representative David Cicilline, Democrat of Rhode Island, who is openly gay and argued Wednesday in a letter to colleagues that House Democrats should, quote, fully respect the diversity of our caucus and the American people by including an LGBTQ plus member at the leadership table. The election for the assistant leader post and several others is expected to be held Thursday. 
Jeffrey's ascent comes as a milestone for black Americans. The capital built with the labor of enslaved people and its dome, later expanded during Abraham Lincoln's presidency as a symbol the nation would stand during the Civil War. His Brooklyn area district was once represented by Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to Congress, who was born on the same day as his election, November 30th, in 1924. The thing about Pete, Catherine, and myself is that we embrace what the house represents, said Jeffries, calling it the institution closest to the people. While the House Democrats are often a big, diverse, noisy family, he said, it's a good thing. He said, at the end of the day, we're always committed to finding the highest common denominator in order to get big things done for everyday Americans. Our next article comes from TheRoot.com, written by Keith Reed, published on the 1st of December GOP fraudsters convicted of tricking black voters, sentenced to register black voters. They ran a multi-state robocall scheme to keep us from voting. So hey, what could go wrong? There's crime, there's punishment, and then there's whatever happened here. After being convicted on fraud charges connected to a scheme, to misinform and scare Ohio voters during the 2020 election, two conservative political ops were sentenced to two years of electronic monitoring and 500 hours of community service. The hitch, their community service, is that they have to spend the time registering people to vote. I mean, I get it, I suppose. The two political dirty tricksters, Jacob Wool and Jack Berkman, hatched a plot that in another political era, one that wasn't filled with conspiracy theories about liberal lizard people practicing pedophilia and Satanistic rituals in D.C. pizza parlor, parlors, pardon me, would have sounded more like they were Scooby-Doo villains. They rigged up robocalls, targeting voters in or near big cities, with lies about mail-in voting. That included the lie that people who voted by mail would be entered into databases that could be used to enforce vaccine mandates or accessed by debt collectors or by law enforcement to track down people with warrants. No such thing is true. In fact, no such thing would be allowed by law in any state. But the point wasn't to give voters accurate information. It was to try and make sure that the wrong kinds of people for Berkman and Wohl's purposes wouldn't have their votes counted in sufficient numbers. And, despite their defense attorney's best efforts to convince a jury otherwise, what they did was a crime— and the Ohio case wasn't the only time they were involved in a similar scheme. The two settled with the Office of New York Attorney General Letitia James back in June over civil charges that they used similarly misleading robocalls to target black folks in the Empire State. 
It's worth taking a step back here to remember that while conservative political ops are the ones being convicted of actual criminal counts of fraud related to their election activities, conservative elected officials shrouding themselves in the rhetoric of, quote, election integrity, and actually passing laws to limit access to mail-in or absentee voting, or in the case of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, starting up an election police force to actually lock up people who had been previously told by the state itself that they had the legal right to register and vote. All of which brings us back to Wohl, Berkman, and their 500-hour voter registration sentence. Maybe it's just me, but the whole thing is giving Fox in Henhouse, Wolf Among Lambs, vibes. I'm sure it's easy to get a sense of schadenfreude at the idea of guys who spent years trying to suppress black votes now being forced, under penalty of law, to help black folks do that very thing. But these don't feel like the kinds of people who possess shame, contrition, and humility at levels sufficient that any judge should feel comfortable letting them anywhere near a ballot box or a voter registration drive, even as punishment. Next article comes via the WashingtonPost.com, written by Karen Atia, posted December 2nd. It's an opinion piece. MSNBC's cancellation of Tiffany Cross sends a chilling signal. About a month ago, I was having a chat with a black editor. We got around to talking about our experiences. As the conversation went on, we agreed that we definitely shared one thing as black people doing public discourse work. Precariousness. To be a black public figure who chooses to be honest about white supremacy in this country is dangerous business, and there is no starker example of that than Tiffany Cross, whose show, The Cross Connection, was canceled last month by MSNBC, and whose contract with the network wasn't renewed. Cross, a former D.C. bureau chief for BET Networks and an associate producer for CNN, was named host of The Cross Connection in late 2020. The show aired Saturday mornings and was one of the higher-rated weekend political shows for the network. It was also one of the few shows left on a major news network that centered the voices of black people and others of color. Cross focused on matters domestic and international, doing shows, for instance, on global diaspora movements. She was unapologetic about discussing white supremacy and did not hold back on matters of race. This, of course, drew the ire of the right-wing chattering class, who increasingly singled her out. In October, after Cross rightly noted how white men dominate the NFL's coaching and ownership ranks, Megan Kelly called her a dumbass, pardon me, quotes, and, quote, the most racist person on television. Later that month, Fox News's Tucker Carlson went on a 10-minute tirade against Cross and MSNBC, accusing Cross of stoking hatred against white people and comparing her show to the radio broadcasts that led to the Rwandan genocide. I'm not making this up. Shortly after that, on November 4th, 
News broke that MSNBC was parting ways with Cross just days before the midterm elections. It was a stunning announcement, and particularly for black journalists, a reminder that the rug could be pulled out from under us at any time. She was not even given the dignity of a final sign-off show. It's all a bad look, sending the message that we can be abruptly deplatformed for stirring up the right-wing media pot. Two years after the supposed global reckoning on race, we are still disposable. The symbolism of Cross's deplatforming is all the more concerning considering the political times we live in. When attacks against black educators, authors, and journalists are increasing across the country. In a letter to MSNBC, more than 40 black leaders protested, quoting, This season is too grave a moment in American history to silence the voices of black women who, time and time again, save America from itself. Parentheses. So far, the National Association of Black Journalists has been quiet. NBC has lost a number of prominent black voices over the years, especially black women. Melissa Harris-Perry's popular MSNBC weekend show was canceled in 2016. In 2017, Tamron Hall was pushed out. MSNBC's Peacock Hub canceled Zerlina Maxwell's and Joshua Johnson's shows, and both left the network. The situation is all the more disheartening considering that MSNBC's current president is a black woman, Rashida Jones. We are made to hope and believe that representation at the upper ranks will understand and support our voices. Sadly, this is not always the case. I am surprised, but not shocked, that this isn't a bigger story for U.S. media journalists. Cross has retained a lawyer and is reportedly looking to challenge her firing. Her case is an important one to watch. We should be glad she's fighting for her voice and the voices of so many of the other communities she featured, but it's awful that a star such as her even has to. If this can happen to Cross, all black journalists are on shaky ground. Next, an article from the board, pardon me, the Boulder Daily Camera was posted on November 26th, written by Amy Bounds. Museum of Boulder Creating Exhibit Curriculum to Proclaim Colorado's Black History Black entrepreneur O.T. Jackson was the Chautauqua Dining Hall's first proprietor when it opened in 1897 in Boulder, then was dismissed two years later after visitors from the South complained about the black waitstaff. He went on to open the beloved Jackson's Resort restaurant, then in 1910 founded Deerfield, a black homesteading settlement near Greeley that became the largest in Colorado. Deerfield was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1995. The Museum of Boulder wants more people, especially students, to know stories like Jackson's as they learn about Boulder County and the state. In partnership with the Boulder Public Library and Boulder County NAACP Chapter, the museum is developing an exhibit 
and school curriculum to highlight Colorado's black history. With funding from a three-year, $250,000 grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the museum plans to collaborate with the community to collect original oral histories and research, consolidate research data, and host programs about race for the Proclaiming Black History project. The challenge is we have so many stories to share, said project co-director Adrian Miller, an author and soul food scholar. Opening day for the museum exhibit is set for next fall on September 29th, with the exhibit expected to remain open for two years to give area schools time to schedule field trips. Once the two years are up, there's a possibility the exhibit could travel to other museums. This is just the start of the conversation, said Lori Preston, the museum's executive director and the co-director on the project with Miller. She said the museum, with the goal of serving as a vital community resource, developed the project to respond to a national racial reckoning following high-profile police killings and widespread pardon me, protests against systemic racism. She said, the grant is really an exceptional opportunity. Boulder is often seen as a model city and on the other end as a bubble and as a white bubble. We need to acknowledge that, probably. Of anybody in the state, we need this the most. We see gaps and we need to do this kind of work and step up to be a model. Black history is Colorado history. The project will be organized around five themes, arts, business and entrepreneurship, civil rights and social justice, predominantly black communities, and Afrofuturism. Leading the curriculum work is Aubrey Reed, who has a background in museum education. She said the plan is to focus on curriculum for high school in fourth grade and pardon me, with fourth grade as the year students learn Colorado history. We want all students to say black history is Colorado history, she said. I want students to appreciate it as part of a bigger history. The museum recently held a tour of its current Voces Vivas exhibit, occupying the same exhibit space that will be used for the Proclaiming Black History exhibit followed by an introductory curriculum meeting for Boulder Valley School District representatives. Also joining the meeting were other community partners, including the Carnegie Library. Reed said, I hope you all will see yourselves and your students reflected in this exhibit. Boulder Valley Equity Coordinator Amy Nelson encouraged the museum to include student voices, along with sharing the work of the district's Student Equity Council and the Centaurus High School, pardon me, the Centaurus High students who developed and pushed for a new ethnic studies class. Boulder Valley plans to offer the ethnic studies class at Centaurus in the spring. The students asked for an, an inclusive class that represents different identities, histories, and cultures, including LGBTQ perspectives. Boulder High also offers an elective race relations class that focuses on the transatlantic slave trade and its impacts on modern-day race relations. Part of what the students are saying is they need representation 
particularly positive representation, said Nelson. They want to see it everywhere. She said another consistent message from students is wanting to feel a sense of belonging. Our students, they need to know that they belong here, and Boulder belongs to them and has for a really long time, she said. Oral histories to be featured. Emily Zinn, the museum's education director and Proclaiming Black History project manager, said the museum spent a year listening and building trust and ident pardon me, identifying people to hire for the project's current design and build phase. We are really trying our hardest to get out of the way and to provide resources to the community to tell their own stories, she said. We want to elevate their voices at an institutional level. Resources for the project include the museum's collections, the Carnegie Library, the NAACP of Boulder County, the University of Colorado Boulder, Second Baptist Church, and local artists and entrepreneurs. Along with project staff members, there's a seven-person advisory council. Undergraduate and graduate students also will assist with the project. And to supplement the grant, the museum is seeking to raise $250,000 in matching funds. Minister Glenda Strong Robinson, the project's oral history liaison and NAACP Boulder County representative, said she's most excited about recording oral histories for the project. With a list of 135 possible candidates so far, 20 of those oral histories will be highlighted as part of the museum exhibit. We were born here, she said. We lived here. We worked here. We died here. One person she's really hoping to include is black astronaut Jessica Watkins, a Fairview High School graduate who lived in Lafayette. She recently returned from an almost six-month stint on the International Space Station. A longtime Longmont resident and civil rights activist, Robinson's personal history includes marching with Martin Luther King Jr. after growing up in the segregated South. Her grandfather was born enslaved, was freed in 1865, and became a farmer and a professor. Black people are an against-all-odds story, said Robinson, but for the grace of God we survived. We survived not being able to read or to learn to write. As human beings, we had the desire to do it and the will to do it. The good and the bad and the ugly has made us. Nikhil Mankekar, pardon me, an advisory council member and civil rights activist, is offering the perspective of someone who attended Boulder schools as a person of color. He also was part of the Boulder County Latino History Project and was one of the founders of Boulder's Indigenous Peoples Day. As a high school freshman, he said, he pushed back on being taught a whitewashed history from a colonial perspective about his own culture. He developed his own curriculum around Indian and Sikh culture and history teaching the unit to his classmates. It was great to flip the false narratives, break down stereotypes, and show how much of our modern lives are shaped and influenced by India, he said. Project Advisory Council member Wendell Pryor, past director of the Colorado Division of Civil Rights, is helping organize a convening 
in December to bring together people from other organizations. Those organizations include the African American Historical and Genealogical Society in Colorado Springs, the Fort Garland Museum's Buffalo Soldiers exhibit, and the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in Denver. That's where the magic is, he said, having people come in from around the state and talk about what they can contribute. They can give us a different lens. His history in Boulder includes earning a master's degree at the University of Colorado Boulder in the 1970s while the city elected its first and only black mayor, Penfield Tate II. Tate's contributions will be part of the project, including his proposal of an amendment to Boulder's Human Rights Ordinance to prevent employers from firing employees based on sexual orientation. Boulder voters rejected it by a landslide, and he was nearly recalled. Pryor said it's also important to bring forward the early histories of the state's black residents, so there is some historical record to help us inform the future, quotes. Even as an adjunct professor teaching graduate-level students, he said, he found many students didn't understand black history and its impacts, including the ongoing impact of slavery. He said, it's important to get students exposed as early as possible. We have got to understand our history. I'm hoping this project becomes a resource for people who want to learn more about the history of this country. Latino Project, a blueprint. Offering a blueprint for the Proclaiming Black History Project is the Boulder County Latino History Project, which documented and described the history of Latinos in the area, concentrating on Boulder, Longmont, and Lafayette. For the Latino History Project, local high school and college interns joined 95 community volunteers in 2013 and 14 to gather oral, written, and photographic information about the experiences and contributions of Latinos. The project then worked with Boulder Valley and St. Vrain Valley teachers to incorporate material about Latino history and culture into the curriculums. Teachers can contribute to access, oh, pardon me, teachers can continue to access source materials and lesson plans at this website, teachbocolatinohistory.colorado.edu. Pardon me, I had trouble reading that. Um, it's uh, once again, all one word, teachbocolatinohistory.colorado.edu. The teaching resources are based on books written by retired University of Colorado Boulder professor Marjorie McIntosh. Linda Arroyo Holmstrom, a Boulder County Latino History Project member, said the hope was to create a project that would serve as a template for other communities. The project includes help for creating teacher workshops and sharing information with the with the information. Oh, pardon me, that's try that again. The project includes help for creating teacher workshops and sharing information with the information. It was just so long overdue for our stories to be told, Arroyo Homestead said. Holmstrom, pardon me. People in the community were so generous with documents, artifacts, and stories. Arroyo also was the community organ pardon me again, community coordinator for the current Voces Vivas exhibit at the Museum of Boulder that highlights the Latino community's local history. 
She said many of the stories were erased, forgotten, or not shared by elders who didn't want to relive a painful past when racism was predominant. It goes to show you how incredibly strong and resilient the community is, she said. We have a proud history, and we're the ones telling it. It's so important that another community, the black community, will be supported in the same way by the museum. Next article comes from the New York Times. This was written by Sam Roberts, posted November 24th. Cecilia Marshall, rights advocate and widow of justice, dies at 94. A civil rights activist herself, she guarded Thurgood Marshall's legacy as the first black member of the Supreme Court. Cecilia Marshall, who, well, pardon me, who, as an NAACP stenographer, transcribed the legal briefs for the Brown v. Board of Education decision and then married Thurgood Marshall, the lawyer who successfully argued that landmark school desegregation case and who later became the first black justice named to the United States Supreme Court, died on Tuesday at her home in Falls Church, Virginia. She was 94. Her death was confirmed by her son, Thurgood Marshall, Jr. Mrs. Marshall, who was known as Sissy, married Mr. Marshall in 1955, a year after the court handed down the board, pardon me, the Brown v. Board of Education decision, which declared that separate but equal facilities for providing public education were inherently unconstitutional. Mr. Marshall, who headed the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, was named to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit by President John F. Kennedy in 1961. President Lyndon B. Johnson appointed him Solicitor General in 1965 and elevated him to Associate Justice of the Supreme Court in 1967. Justice Marshall retired in 1991 and died at age 84 in 1993. Mrs. Marshall, a civil rights stalwart herself, served on the boards of the Supreme Court Historical Society and the NAACP Legal and Defense and Education Fund, she tempered her husband's exasperation over the slow progress of civil rights during his career and guarded his legacy after his death. In a 1998 biography titled Thurgood Marshall, American Revolutionary, the journalist Juan Williams wrote that she had struggled to keep from the public his explosive Quote, frustration with the conservative court and what remained of the civil rights movement. In addition to their son Thurgood Jr., Mrs. Marshall is survived by another son, John W. Marshall, a former Virginia Secretary of Public Safety and former director of the U.S. Marshal Service, four grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. Justice Elena Kagan, who had clerked for Justice Marshall, said in a statement after Mrs. Marshall's death, every clerk to Justice Marshall received a sort of bonus, the steadfast friendship and support of his wife, Sissy. Cecilia Suyat was born on July 20, 1928, in Puneen, Maui, Hawaii, to parents who had immigrated from the Philippines in 1910. Her mother died when she was young. Her father, who owned a printing company, sent her to live with an aunt and uncle in New York after World War II to separate her from a boyfriend whom he disfavored. 
for a Hawaiian marrying Mr. Marshall after his first wife Vivian Marshall died of lung cancer at 44 meant crossing an even bigger barrier, especially after Walter White, the head of the NAACP, who was black, divorced his black wife to marry a white woman. That interracial marriage practically broke up the whole organization, Mrs. Marshall recalled in an interview for the Civil Rights History Project in 2013. And so when Thurgood proposed, I said, no way, because a lot of people still considered me as a foreigner, she said. Hawaii wasn't too familiar to people back then, but he insisted. And they surmounted another gap. He was six foot two, she was four foot eleven. Roy Wilkins, then the executive director of the NAACP, presided at the wedding at the historic St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Harlem. Parentheses. Mrs. Marshall had been the private secretary to the NAACP's former deputy executive director, Dr. Gloucester B. Current. She had taken night courses in stenography at Columbia University because of her dark skin, she said, an employment office clerk referred to her as the NAACP in Washington. Her first assignment was to picket a theater showing the racist epic film The Birth of a Nation. Parentheses, the theater canceled the showing. She also accompanied defense lawyers on sometimes harrowing assignments to the segregated South during the Civil Rights Movement. I remember riding in one car with Thurgood, and one of the branch members says, Judge? open up that glove compartment, she recalled in the oral history, and he opened it up. He says, you see, there's a Bible there, and there's a gun there. He says, we use the Bible first. If that doesn't work, we use the gun. Next, we have some profile pieces. This first one comes from a recent edition of the ARP magazine. Green Thumb. Former entrepreneur Tony Hillary turned a vacant lot into a life-changing urban farm. Quote, the kids and I learned together. Hillary's nonprofit helps kids and families eat healthy. Up until 2008, I thought I had it all. I owned a limousine company that catered to an elite clientele and life was good. Then the financial crisis hits and my business went under. I became depressed. My wife would go to work, come home 12 hours later, and I'm still in my pajamas. My three kids were in their teens or older. They had their own lives. I got more and more isolated and withdrawn. Then I started reading about schools in low-income neighborhoods that didn't have even basic supplies. How could this be happening in the richest city in the country? One day I decided I had to do something for these kids. I took the train to the center of Harlem, walked into the first school I saw, PS 175, and told the principal I was there to help. I started volunteering, welcoming the kids as they arrived in the morning and monitoring the lunchroom. My entire world changed. Gone was my self-pity. Most of the kids were eligible for free breakfast and lunch, and about 40% of the students lived in homeless shelters. There were plenty of fast food places in the area, 
but nowhere to get healthy food. I decided to make that my mission. Across the street from the school, there was an empty city lot, pardon me, that's empty city park, that had been registered as a garden, but no one was tilling it. The parks department helped me get the rights to become its caretaker. I didn't know anything about creating a garden, but the kids and I learned together, searching the internet for advice. I called myself a Google gardener. The idea took off from there. I founded a nonprofit called Harlem Grown. We now have 13 urban farms all over Harlem that produce 6,000 pounds of healthy food a year, free to anyone who helps. All I ask is sweat equity. We pay for seeds, supplies, and everything else through fundraising. The nonprofit has 27 employees, including me, and we hire people from the community and pay them fair wages with benefits. So it's not just healthy food that we're growing. We're also helping parents to grow healthy and industrious kids. We currently have 19 graduates of our elementary school program enrolled in universities. I came into this thinking that when I had money, I had success. But these kids truly changed the way I look at the world. I didn't save them. They saved me. Next one still on gardening comes from afro.com, but also via ARP originally. This is from a series called The Caregivers. Peace flourish in this 79-year-old's community garden. Joyce Randolph began a small garden with her daughter in 2013. She found that gardening is good for the mind and for building community. Joyce Randolph began a small backyard garden with her daughter at their home in Indianapolis in 2013. Together, her family has grown it into a community endeavor called Elephant Garden LLC. At 79 years old, Randolph is the oldest of five generations, parentheses, with 16 great-grandchildren and one great-great-grandchild. She is determined to bring healthy food options to her area and to leave a legacy for the whole community. What are you growing in your garden? Well, let's see. Green beans, okra, two or three varieties of tomatoes, about four or five varieties of peppers. Parentheses. We even throw in a few ghost peppers for those who really like it hot. Eggplant, cucumbers. That's a good list. What am I forgetting? We do onions, we do garlic, we do potatoes, we do leeks. Then we also have herb gardens. We do oregano, basil, parsley, thyme, rosemary, lavender, peppermint, spearmint, lemon balm. Does everyone tend to the garden? Everyone has a part, from planting seeds to putting everything in the ground to taking care of it, harvesting it, and providing it to residents in our neighborhood. How is gardening good for the mind? You're out in God's green acres. You're tilling the soil. It's relaxing. It's definitely hard work. You've got to fight the weeds and the bugs and all of that. But for the mind, it's a peaceful situation. You're definitely in touch with the earth because there's no way you can garden without touching the earth. It brings us back to where we really started. 
I mean, when someone passes away and we put them, quote, in the ground, we put them in the dust from where they became. It brings you right back to your creator. What do you find is good about community gardening in particular? It brings people together. We have conversations with people walking down the street. That's one of the benefits of being a community garden, is that you are interacting with those in your neighborhood. It gives a thorough understanding of what mankind really is all about. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am my brother's keeper, and it does not mean my blood brother. It means mankind, womankind. We are in a food desert and we can supply our community. And the elephant has symbolism for you. Their loyalty to the community, which is a big thing for us as a family. They look after their young. They look after each other. They're a big animal, of course, but they leave a beautiful footprint. For one more article sticking with the theme of food, this one comes via wordinblack.com a groundbreaking collaboration of the nation's leading black news publishers, it says. This was posted back in July, the 24th of July, written by Houston Defender. Community Wellness Initiative pushes healthy food, healthy people. Shape Community Center, the Alabama Garden, Blodgett Urban Garden, Palm Center Garden, and Peaceful Planet Foundation have partnered to provide solutions to several current and long-standing food and health challenges. Um, pardon me, it looks like I have a second author listed here. It says, this post was originally published on Defender Network by Oswad Walker. I think there will be an author for each of the centers we're discussing. In Third Ward, several entities are banding together to provide body, mind, and spirit nourishment for adults and youth alike. Shape Community Center, the Alabama Garden, Blodgett Urban Garden, Palm Center Garden, and Peaceful Planet Foundation have partnered to provide solutions to several current and long-standing food health challenges. The Community Wellness Initiative, CWI, started as an outgrowth of local author-activist Shara Aguirre's book, Joyful, De Delicious, Vegan, Life Without Heart Disease. Says Aguirre, I wrote it because I'm very passionate about health and wellness. A lot of that's due to my family history of heart disease, which is typical of a lot of African-American families. So I wanted to share the message that there are ways to actually prevent or even reverse it with a healthy, plant-strong diet. After issuing the call, several of Aguirre's friends responded, including Dola Young, a retired attorney and SHAPE supporter recently certified as an integrative nutrition health coach. The initiative is about getting a group of grassroots people who want their own health to be improved and then sharing that information with their family and community, said Young. That's about the initiative's each one teach one approach, said Dr. Bandana Chalwa, Chalwa, Chow, pardon me, that's C-H-A-W-L-A, -A, Chala. Basically, it's a group of community health ambassadors. 
She, with her husband, Dr. Munish Chala, are physicians who are board certified in lifestyle medicine and founders of the nonprofit Peaceful Planet Foundation. These 19 people are learning all that they can about nutrition, exercise, stress management, gardening, just various things, so that they can then be the ambassadors of health in their own community and teach this information to their friends and family and community members. Chronic diseases, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or obesity, they're caused by our diet and lifestyle, said Dr. Munish Chala. We need to fix that, otherwise we can throw all the pills, all the procedures at them, but we're not addressing the root cause. The Chalas said Aguirre's initiative was consistent with their work that seeks to address patients from a holistic approach, with community being a foundational component. And that's where SHAPE came in. Aguirre said, pardon me, Aguirre and SHAPE's director, Deloitte Parker, were college classmates who, along with other UH students in the late 1960s, helped found SHAPE. To come full circle now and to be able to do something that is an asset, hopefully to SHAPE and also a benefit to the community, is so rewarding, said Aguirre. We have a six-week program for SHAPE children that teaches kids about the importance of gardening, how to garden, and where certain fruits and veggies come from, how they're grown, and how to maintain them. Adams, whose Blodgett Urban Garden provided CWI participants with prepackaged bags of organic food, said, That was my favorite part teaching individuals how they can use different organic foods to eat healthy, different types of meals that they could easily prepare that would take 10 to 25 minutes or less, and watching the health benefits in them transform their lives in 30 days. I'm excited that, that we've embraced a very comprehensive and holistic approach to good health, said Parker. SHAPE is honored to be hosting and participating in this partnership because that's what it is, a comprehensive partnership that's about healthy living and healthy life. Next I'll be reading some book reviews. These come from a recent edition of the print edition of the Wall Street Journal. First, Michael Twitty's Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew, publisher Amistad, offers a political food memoir of a different sort, the second in a proposed trilogy that began with the two-time James Beard award-winning The Cooking Gene. Kosher Soul explores the intersectionality of food, faith, and race. For Mr. Twitty, Kosher soul is synonymous with black Jewish joy. It's another word for kinfolk, a way to unite the shared histories and experiences of diasporic, nomadic peoples who have sought liberation through self-determination and community, as well as, quote, knowledge, mysticism, and spiritual power. Mr. Twitty says he uses food to locate himself somewhere in a spectrum that doesn't always make room for anomalies like me. He is an openly gay, orthodox convert in what is traditionally an anti-queer community who was the only instructor of color at his Hebrew school where he taught for a decade. 
and a congregant at a Maryland synagogue once housed on the former plantation grounds that inspired Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. His untraditional satyr plate features a chicken bone in place of a lamb shank, collard greens representing the bitter herbs, hot pepper subbing for horseradish, and hoe cake for matzo. We're complicated people, Mr. Twitty writes, of those he winkingly calls the chocolate chosen. His fellow kosher soul nicks, who are lovingly profiled throughout. There's Solomon Franco, our Kunta Quinte, who was arrested in 17th century Boston for traveling on the Sunday Sabbath, not the Sabbath he honored. There are the generations of black domestic cooks who prepared Shabbat meals for southern kosher families. And then there's Shais Rishon, a Brooklyn-based black Orthodox rabbi. The most important thing about us black Jews is not how we got here or why we're here, Rabbi Rishon affirms. It's that we ask Jewish questions and make Jewish decisions and live Jewish lives. Dozens of soulful kosher recipes are included. Collard green crepla, black-eyed peas hummus, matzo meal fried chicken, yam kugel. Cooking, Mr. Twitty writes, is a form of wrestling and of learning for black, Jewish, and kosher soul peoples. But Mr. Twitter's memoir reveals that wrestling with one's food is for all readers and eaters, no matter one's chosen faith or food ways. Once again, that's Michael Twitty, Kosher Soul. Next, in his 1970 classic, The Omni-Americans, cultural critic Alec Albert Murray argued persuasively that the United States is not a nation of black and white people, but a nation of multicolored people. Any fool can see that the white people are not really white and that black people are not black, Murray wrote. They are all interrelated one way or another. Despite his belief in the interconnectedness of American life and culture, Murray remained puzzled by the preoccupation of white America with the folklore of white supremacy. Writing at the power, pardon me, writing at the height of the Black Power movement, he was also critical of black writers who aimed to elicit fear and guilt from whites rather than constructive action. Fear and guilt may affect short-term gains, but real progress can only be born of truth and reason. And as Murray would say, a writer who would tell the truth about race in America should never claim more on the page than his words can make self-evident. In a spirit of inquiry connected to Murray's omni-Americans, David Hackett Fisher's African Founders, Simon and Schuster, explores the ways that enslaved Africans contributed to early American culture. Mr. Fisher argues that people of African descent played a central role in defining, fighting for, and even saving the American experiment. Yet for all the empirical evidence that he presents here, from forgotten slave rebellions to African Seminole warriors struggling to maintain their freedom, Mr. Fisher fails Murray's test by claiming more than he can make self-evident. For example, he writes that abolitionist Frederick Douglass identified with the culture and values in his native slaveholding region, as a man who was introduced to the terrors of slavery by the screams of his Aunt Hester while she was being beaten, 
Douglas had little regard for the slaveholders of his native Maryland. Of course, Douglas believed in the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. That does not mean that he also identified with Thomas Jefferson. Further, when Mr. Fisher notes that the primary object of the Code Noir, the 1724 law regulating slavery in colonial Louisiana, was to stabilize an entire religious, social, and political system on a Roman Catholic and absolutist French model. Quotes, he neglects the way the law's very name suggests a desire to connect slavery with race, thus tightening the association of whiteness with freedom. Mr. Fisher concludes African Founders with a meditation on W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk and its focus on spiritual striving. And once again, that book is David Hackett Fisher's African Founders. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the Anxious Foundation. Strengthening individuals and communities to improve the quality of lives. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.